I went to Bentley University in Waltham, Mass, and uh, one of the top business schools in the country. And I vividly remember my guidance counselor telling me, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't even apply there. You're never going to get in. And uh, I don't take never very well. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, authority has always pissed me off. And I remember going, how dare you tell me that? And yeah, I knew I didn't necessarily have the grades and I had no clue how I was going to pay for it. But I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to apply. And when I got my early decision letter from them, I vividly remember making a photocopy and slapping it down on her desk and walking out. I was so pissed. You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Louder Than Words, where we get to hang out with some of the most brilliant people in business and entrepreneurship. It's a lot of fun. My name's John Benini. I'm a conversion copywriter by trade. I have a website where I post about creating copy that drives action from headlines and button text and emails and all those things you guys already read too much about. But uh, if you want to see my take on it, please come check me out at my website. I'm at www.johnbenini.co and on Twitter at Benini84, where a lot of you seem to be finding me. So it's great to chat with you guys. Welcome any and all conversation. But more importantly, today, I'm hanging out with C.C. Chapman, an international best-selling author and a prolific speaker. Honestly, if you haven't seen this guy speak at a conference, um, you're conferencing wrong. You know, Get your shit together at the next conference that he's at, that you're at. Make sure you make the time to go see him speak because he's brilliant. He's also published books like Ama- Amazing Things Will Happen and Content Rules along with Ann Hanley. He's a brand storyteller. He works for, for little brands like Coca-Cola and JetBlue. You may have heard of them. And also heads a consultancy focused on nonprofits and NGOs called Never Enough Days. We can go on and on about all the interesting things, but we'll just get into talking to CC and let him do that. So, CC, welcome and thanks for coming on Louder Than Words. How's everything? Thanks for having me. It's a little hot and humid in Boston today, but no, we're doing good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not much farther. I'm about two hours south of you, right in uh, central Connecticut. And same thing here. Hazy humid cloudy so it's a good day to be inside recording a podcast I'll tell you well except except the only, that's the only thing wrong with, with podcasts is you have to turn off the ac units when you uh because <laughs> otherwise the, that's almost like oh i get so hot at the end of a podcast interview but it's definitely worth it psyched to be here i just did that so i walk out here it's like a sauna when you leave <laughs> yep. the gym so awesome so let's start here really important question i want to reveal your secret identity what does the cc stand for Oh, yeah. No, not, not too, too secret. But uh, third grade, uh, there was another Charles in the class. So my name is Charles Chapman. And she didn't he had a nickname and she didn't want me to feel left out. So she called me CC and it stuck. So it's a uh, Mrs. Mursky's fault from third grade. And it literally just stuck literally since then. I mean, except for very few people on this planet, everybody calls me CC. Well, it's a really cool moniker, so I would say... Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you indeed to your teacher. Um, So you're from New Hampshire, right? You're a New Hampshire kid. Yeah, born and raised in uh, the Upper Valley of New Hampshire. So I used to actually, being from Connecticut, we actually used to go up there a lot when I was a kid, but the only things I'm really familiar with are obviously the White Mountains. I remember driving up Mount Washington and being scared out of my mind when I was a kid. <laughs> and then I later hiked it with my brothers after my my oldest brother got married in 2009. We we actually hiked Mount Washington up Lion's Head and it was just a, just an awesome hike. And obviously old man in the mountain and all those sorts of things. But um, coming from a local kid like yourself, tell us what it's like to grow up in New Hampshire. Well, I grew up in uh, West Lebanon, New Hampshire, which is a really small town right on the Vermont border, Connecticut River in the background, Dartmouth College right up the street. And it's one of those things where 
growing up in a small town, I couldn't wait to leave. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I, I, I you know, my, my grandparents, both of my grandparents were within walking distance of my house. I had teachers that my dad had in high school. So I wanted to get out. But I love New Hampshire. I mean, the White Mountains, I'm a big outdoors guy. So, you know, whether it was putting the canoe into the river out behind our house or going up to the White Mountains, uh, you know, hiking and camping. I used to do all that stuff growing up. Never got into the, to the winter sports, you know, uh, skiing and that thing. I think I'm the only New Englander who doesn't ski, but I loved it. I, I still, even though I have a Massachusetts license plate and I've lived in Massachusetts now, it's got to be like 15 years or something, it still pains me to have a Massachusetts license plate. I mean, I love Boston, love my Red Sox, but uh, I, I, I will always be a New Hampshire boy through and through. Was there a lot to do there? I mean, going through high school and in the, in the adolescent years, was there a lot to do besides <laughs> the outdoor stuff? Because from an outsider like myself, I'm like, man, growing up there must be pretty quiet. Well, it was. And I'm actually kind of thankful for it. I mean, so it, I, I talk a little bit about this sometimes where, you know, I mean, I grew up, I didn't have a ton of friends. I mean, I got bullied when I was little. So it was a lot of alone time. And alone time pre-internet was a beautiful thing because it was, you know, me and my buddies, you know, building forts and getting in trouble in the woods or riding our bikes from sun up to sundown and using our imagination and stuff. Uh, and there wasn't a lot to do. I mean, there still there isn't a lot. I mean, there's a bowling alley and there's the movies and there's getting in trouble and girls and boys and all that fun stuff. But, you know, and then it was one of those, I mean, literally my, my sophomore year of high school. So like, you know, uh, I, I got my first borrowed, uh, that's the word I like to use, uh, uh, account at Dartmouth. So I could, all of a sudden I was on the internet and, and chat rooms and networked games. You know, and this was the pre, I mean, this was text only stuff and pre internet as we know it. And that kind of opened up my eyes to a whole other world and stuff. But yeah, no, there wasn't a lot to do. I read a lot, uh, hung out with my, well, my girlfriend when, you know, when I, when I had one or didn't have one. I mean, there wasn't a ton to do, but I think it helped me because it gave me, a chance to do, you know, you went, you went to the football games on Saturday and I was in the band and those sort of things. So there was, there was, there was stuff to do, but not a ton to do. That's for sure. Were you one of those kids? You hear a lot of entrepreneurs and, and business people talk about this now is like, you know, they just had it in their DNA. They were buying ice cream from the ice cream man and flipping it for double the money. Were you one of those guys who, you know, were you doing stuff as a kid where you just had entrepreneurship or, or writing? Uh, you're a big content guy. Was that stuff sort of in your DNA as you were growing up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was little, I I used to tell everybody I wanted to be an artist when I grew up. My grandfather was a photographer, not a photographer, he was not, not by trade, but he he loved photography and creating it a dark room in his basement. So he taught me about a little bit about photography and, and instead of writing letters back and forth to each other, because um, for a while when I was really little, we, we moved away to Maryland. We used to draw pictures to each other instead of writing letters. Um, I used to write short stories all the time. Um, it, 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 but entrepreneur, I mean, I vividly remember going to the penny candy store, which doesn't, you know, penny candy doesn't exist. And I would, I would go buy like 25 cents worth of candy and then sell it for a nickel a piece and make some money. I did that off and on. It wasn't like, but no, I wasn't, you know, and I had a paper route at a very early age and did that. So, I mean, I loved making money and doing, you know, the work to get money. I always sucked at keeping the money cause I enjoyed spending it. Um, <laughs> even though, you know, even though I came from, a, a, I mean, I grew up in a blue collar family and, you know, it just was that sort of, you know, money was not, it didn't come easy at all. So the idea of teaching me to save it and those sort of things just wasn't part of the world because we didn't have the money to worry about necessarily saving. You know, you earned the money to, to, to pay for the things you needed to. Um, but yeah, it was always there. I mean, my dad started his own business, you know, Lance, he's a forester by trade. He started his own landscaping business and did it for a few years and he had a bunch of different jobs. So I think it's definitely in the DNA. My sister, 
has her own business too. So, you know, I think it's definitely, while it wasn't necessarily on the surface all the time, it's definitely in there for sure. Did you, uh, did you get pulled into helping your dad out a lot in the family business? No, nah, not, not too much. I mean, when you're talking about chainsaws and stuff, kids aren't <laughs> supposed to play with those, but yeah, I mean, you know, cleaning up around the yard and things like that, but no, not, I mean, uh, no, <laughs> thankfully, probably not that, that wouldn't, but I still, I get really nostalgic anytime I smell chainsaw oil and like freshly cut trees. It instantly brings me back to my dad. I mean, he's my dad's still with us, thank God, but you know, it's instantly I think of my dad. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, you're, you're in New Hampshire. Um, you, you went to high school there. Comes time to go to college. Where did you go to school? I went to Bentley University in Waltham, Mass, and uh, one of the top business schools in the country. And I vividly remember my guidance counselor telling me, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't even apply there. You're never going to get in. And uh, I don't take never very well. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, authority has always pissed me off. And I remember going, how dare you tell me that? And yeah, I knew I didn't necessarily have the grades and I had no clue how I was going to pay for it. But I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to apply. And when I got my early decision letter from them, I vividly remember making a photocopy and slapping it down on her desk and walking out. I was so pissed. Um, so yeah, we have Bentley University with a degree in computer information systems. That's great. And so if you had to you know, d- describe the path that sort of led you to what you're doing today, <laughs> um, you know, post-graduation, you said you went, to, you, know, you went to one of the better business schools around. Um, describe that path that sort of brought you to you know, the C.C. Chapman that uh, many people in marketing know today. It's uh, not a linear one for sure. I think that's true of most people. You know, that, that, that corporate ladder idea didn't work. I mean, I came out of school with a degree in computers. It was the height of dot com. Uh, you know, you could throw it, if you had any computer knowledge, you could get a job. And the funny thing is, too, as I should mention, when I entered college, I thought about majoring in marketing and was told by several people that I trusted it's going to be too hard to find a job. Don't major in marketing, which is funny to come to where we are now. Um, and I, did, I came out of school. I, I worked uh, for a government consulting agency down outside of D.C. for several years, you know, programming Y2K stuff, all that fun stuff. Realized I hated programming, uh, but I understood coding very well. I understood the mentality, uh, started doing intranets and usability studies and all that stuff. Came back to New England when we had our, uh, our first child, my son. And I was working at Babson College, another great business school in the IT department. and. It was interesting because all of a sudden they their marketing they had a marketing department for the school and the webmaster was leaving and I said I want his job but I want to do it I want it to be something more I want it to be called the digital marketing manager because things are going to change drastically it's going to be much more than just the web and I got the job and we built the department and everything and then I kind of left there and went into the age a friend of mine said hey I'm starting an agency do you want to be part of it uh sure I got I've never done agency work before. Got in there, started doing that, left to form my own agency, uh, wrote a couple books, spoke a lot. And one of the things, too, is in the background of all of this, I've always been interested in technology. I always like experimenting, and I think that helps because while all this was going on, I was helping me and my buddy founded an independent uh, production company. We were making these little indie films and marketing them and figuring out how to promote them on the web. And then, oh, well, blogging, let's play with that and podcasting, let's play with that. And, you know, so in the background, I vividly remember when I took this job as the digital marketing manager, I told my boss to listen, because at Babson, I was known as Charles for whatever my 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 first boss there wouldn't. He was a proper English gentleman. He wouldn't call me Cece. And they, I said, listen, you got to understand, I have this whole other life outside of work. And I, you know, I was showing them online. I'm like, listen, you know, so if you ever see if these worlds ever cross paths, I, I want everybody to know about things. 
And we find ourselves here today. I mean, that's the quick, 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 because I know this this is a podcast. We don't want to go on and on for hours, but it was a long, crazy trip and just marketing something I've always enjoyed. I've always enjoyed figuring out new things, technology I've always loved, but I'm, I don't think like a coder. Uh, while I can understand it, I don't think that way, and I, I appreciate good coders. So marketing's where I ended up and you know, now kind of walking a different line too at the same time. Yeah, and you mentioned speaking in there, and obviously that's a big part of who you are. Um, how did that start? Because you are an amazing speaker. Thank and, you. And 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 no small. That's no small feat. Obviously, you go to these conferences. There's a million people there. I think the part that's special about you is, uh, just like this podcast, you're very personable. Personal, personable. Um, it, it seems like you're just hanging out, just Thank just talking you. to me. So, how did that? Um, how did that all start? And how did you? How did you get to where you are now? Where sure, you know, you're speaking at the biggest conferences in the world. So, I mean, how did that all you know come about? Fifth grade, another teacher, Miss Susan Pet, uh, Mrs. Pet, uh, said, "Cece, you should try drama." And I went, drama? Theater? And she said, yeah, you should try drama. You should try out for the play and do the play. And the play was Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. And I got the lead part as The Lorax. And and the rest is history. I mean, literally, I, I whenever people say, how do you get comfortable speaking and, and, and everything, I always thank theater. Because once you've done Shakespeare on stage and you've got a donkey's head on a han and your Italian grandmother's in the third row laughing hysterically at you and you have to do Shakespeare, you can do anything. And that's that's been my path. I mean, I think it was one of those things where I always enjoyed being in front of people. And the way – and speaking really came about – the very first thing was it was podcasting. I mean, I was – I had one of the – first big popular uh, internet uh, music podcast. I was playing indie music. I was being paid to podcast um, back in, you know, back in the early days, 2005, 2006. And I was a big proponent of artist rights. And I started getting asked to come speak on it because there was very few people who understood podcasting and understood music rights. And I started getting, I vividly remember, I had to get a, a, use my passport for the first time to go to a conference in Cologne, Germany to speak on podcast uh, uh, music rights. And that's how it all started. And it was one of those things where I started speaking on this and then people like, oh, Cece, we speak about podcasting and social media. Yeah, sure. And I've always, in my heart, whenever I take the stage, still this day, my, my whole goal is to inspire the audience I'm in front of, whether it's a class of 30 people or whether it's, you know, a thousand people, keynote sort of thing. I want to inspire people and hope they learn things. And that's the way I've always taken. I mean, I get I get super nervous right before take, taking the stage. The minute my first word comes out of my mouth, uh, it's it's it feels better. And the personal thing, it's always funny because I love when people say that because I think that, that that goes back to the New Hampshire thing, to the small town thing. I mean, New Englanders will say hi to anybody. We will talk to anybody. Whenever, No matter what country I am in the world, I say hi to strangers on the street and it freaks them out. But, that's just, <laughs> but it's funny because I'll, I'll say good morning. It's just it's who I am. And I think that's, um, that's what helps me on stage because I, I look out and I don't care if it's a room full of CEOs, a room of artists, a room of tradesmen. I don't care who it is. I'm treating them all the same. They're they're just they're people, and uh, it's it's beautiful thing. I don't. Um, I love being on stage. It is my happiest place besides being with my family. The happiest place is when I'm on stage talking. That that rush feels so good, and it shows too. And and thank you. And just from hearing the buzz, you know, after you leave certain events, and, and you've spoken at Inbound several times, and you know, you, you definitely leave people inspired leaving the thank room. Thank you. But how about for you personally, as far as inspiration goes? Who who would you say has taught you more about 
you know, we're going to get deep here. Who's talking okay. more about life and and your job more than anyone else in the world? Who would you say has taught you the most about those things? Oh, man. I That's tough because I get a lot of – I have a lot of different mentors in this world. I mean we were talking beforehand that you just had Seth Godin on the show. Seth has been a huge inspiration to me on the um, professional side of things. So as people like Marcus Buckingham. But then closest, closer to home, like Mitch Joel is a dear friend of mine. And uh, you know, he, he, when you, you want to talk about an amazing speaker, an amazing smart businessman and marketer, that's Mitch. But Mitch is a friend – uh, that I've learned a lot from my, my dad. I learned a ton from, he's been a huge influence on me, even though he doesn't understand what I do 99% of the time, you know, he made me the man that I am. And as a father of a son, I'm hoping I'm passing on at least a little bit of that, uh, to my kids. Um, but then, you know, I've also like, uh, AJ Leon is a, is another friend, uh, runs a company called Misfit Incorporated. You know, I watch his life every day and I'm fortunate that he's a friend of mine and I watch and I just watch his path and watch what he does. And he constantly inspires me and makes me go, get off your ass, CC, and do more because I look at what he's doing and I'm like, how does he do that? And I mean... I, the list goes on and on. I've been very, very fortunate to cross paths with so many people. And I'm also a constant – I think anybody should do this. I mean I'm constantly consuming things, whether it's videos or reading books or magazines or meeting people. I I, I want to be a lifelong student. So I'm constantly learning and being inspired and um, I, it just – it keeps me going. One of those people too that you you cross path with and you have a, a very close relationship with is obviously Anne Hanley, who yeah. you co-authored Content Rules with. Um, brilliant book, international bestseller, sort of like you guys can honestly say you guys wrote the book on content <laughs> marketing, one of the first in the space. Now there's tons. Uh, talk about that relationship. How did how did you meet Anne? How did that whole sure. relationship to you know either one of you could have written that book on your own? So how did that whole project come about? Well, it's funny because Anne and I knew each other. Obviously, we we traveled in similar circles. We're both here in Boston. We you know we went to a lot of the same conferences and social. So we knew each other, but we weren't super close. And I always remember, and people don't believe me when I tell this. My phone rang, and I looked, and it said Anne Hanley. And my first thought is, how do I have her number? Because I didn't know why she was in my contact list. She what? That's how not close we were. And I answered it, and she's like, hey, da, da, da. and you know, she asked me to write this book. She had, she had, um, I'd been wanting to write a book for a long time, and Wiley, our publisher, had been coming to me to write a book, and I just hadn't found the book that I wanted to write yet. And I was already noodling on amazing things will happen. It wasn't didn't have that title yet, but I that was the book I was brewing over and trying to figure out. So when Anne came to me, I told her no. I said nah. I said I literally said, who needs a book on content marketing? Whoops. But you know, I, th- th- I literally said that. I said, I said, Ann, I'm just, I don't know. And she's like, come on, let's have breakfast and we'll talk about it. So we went to this little um, uh, diner that's actually at this tiny little airport here in Massachusetts. And she showed me, she, had, she already had an outline for it because she was already, she already had the title, the cover was picked out, but she realized, at least, and, and I'm, I'm not speaking out of school, this is what she told me. She said, you know, she realized that while she's an amazing writer, has all these massive skills, she hadn't done a ton of it out in the space. You know, she hadn't done, had the agency side and those sort of things. And she wanted someone who, and she, she told me afterwards that if I had said no, she didn't know what she was going to do because I was the only person she contacted. I figured I was like the eighth or ninth. But and we and I vividly remember looking through this spreadsheet of uh, the chapters and the things, and I laughed. I said, "Wow, have you been ripping off my presentations?" And we both had a good. Li- what I meant by that was, you know, I was seeing things that I was already saying. So I said, "Okay, let's do this." And since then, of course, when you, the process of writing a book is so 
hard to explain to someone who hasn't been through it. It's hell. Um, it's not like going to war hell, but it's a, it's its own kind of hell. And we became so, so close. And, you know, I've seen so many stories of co-authors not getting along and hating each other. And Anne and I genuinely love each other. And, you know, we've talked about doing a revision to the book or another book. And, you know, we talk all the time. We don't see each other as often as I wish. But, you know, it was one of those things that I remember telling my wife is that you do realize that as soon as this book comes out, there will always be another woman in my life um, <laughs> because forever Anne and I will be tied together, especially if this book does well. And it did do well. And um, yeah, she's she is such and I was so scared. I, I mean, I got to tell you, I was scared because her writing, especially like her her prose, like her non-professional writing, like when she tells stories of her dog or her oh, family, she's she incredible. is so so good. I keep telling her, I can't wait for her to write a memoir or a book of essays someday because my God, can she write? And I was so nervous. I'm like, they're going to tell which words I wrote and which you wrote. Uh, and I remember we felt pretty good that it, it, it pretty much and we just we gelled so well and such a talented and amazing human. And I'm I'm so fortunate that she asked me because if I had really said no, man, I'd be kicking myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> She's one of those people who I crumble up half the stuff I write because I know it can, <laughs> it can be better because Anne exists. <laughs> and then it was so funny because I remember, and it, for, for, for your listeners, if, you're try, if you want to be a better writer, Anne wrote this other book called Everybody Writes, and it's so good. And, it, it, and it's just one of those books where I read it, and I remember when she told me she was going to be writing this book, and I'm like, Anne, that's what you were meant to write. Go, go, go. And it's a great, great read. It's, it's the modern elements of style. So definitely if you're yes, in any is. content or writing, definitely get that book. And, and you even mentioned this, that a lot has changed. Um, a lot of the platforms are still the same, obviously, from when you wrote that book, social, podcast, blogging, and all that stuff. But you know, here in 2015 or even in 2016, 2017 going forward, if you were to start a new venture right now with limited resources like you know, maybe some of the people that listen to this podcast have, where would you focus your emotional labor as it relates to content? Because there's so many platforms – so where would you spend your time? Well, I mean, the first thing I always tell people, and it's funny because I hate saying there's like absolutes, you know, because every situation is different. But at the minimum, you've got to set up a blog. You have to because and I'm not saying you just have to be writing on it every single day. But having that capability where you have a publishing platform that you control and that can't be changed on you is critical. The rest of the Internet all the tools are rented land. By setting up a content publishing platform, also known as a blog, you have control over it. So I would start there because then you can publish all your content that you want there. And, and the next thing I always say is then figure out – I mean it's one of our content rules is to play to your strengths. Figure out what you enjoy doing. If it's writing, write. If it's photography, start taking pictures. If it's video, play with that because – if you are a small, especially if you're a one-person shop, you can't do it all or you can't do it all really well. Um, you've got to build a business. So start where you're most comfortable and you feel comfortable day in and day out, you know, and, and then go from there and expand. And don't be afraid to try these new things, but to also don't invest, you know, super amounts of time because time is so valuable. I mean, you can throw money away. Please don't. But you can. But you, if you throw time away – you can never, ever, ever make that back. So experiment very, very smartly. But start with the blog and figure out what content you enjoy creating and that your audience will appreciate and start there and start populating that blog and pushing it out to the other networks because, um, you know, look at Facebook. I mean, you build up a million likes and then all of a sudden they go, okay, you got to pay to reach them. That's not good. So all these other networks can change the rules real fast. So I, I say start with setting up a blog and what you're comfortable with. Yeah, make sure you build a house in your own backyard is, yeah. is, is a saying you often hear from a lot of CMOs and, and why people are so 
hesitant to syndicate to places like Medium and LinkedIn. And uh, you see a lot of people playing with it, but they want to build the house in their own backyard, like you said. So that is that is definitively the most important thing that you can do. And and you talk, obviously, a lot about this to a lot of big companies. You're a brand storyteller. Uh, you work with companies like, like I mentioned some of them earlier, HBO, Coca-Cola, American Eagle, JetBlue. We're just name dropping right now. But <laughs> So you're a brand storyteller. and You work with companies of this size. Like, What does that entail? Like, what, what, what does the sort of work that you do look like when you work with these companies? Sure. So, I mean, the the storytelling part is interesting because a lot of it is going in and helping them find a story. And, you know, it's, you know, going in and, okay, what are you trying to do? Is it a new product? Is it a new service? Okay. All right. When's it going live? All right. Cool. What's your story? How do you want to go to market this? Is it, are we going to go funny? Is it going to be uh, more in- informational? Do we want it to have glamour? Or is it more gritty? And those sort of things. And those are the first conference. That's where it all starts is figuring out, okay, what's this going to look, feel, and act like? Not necessarily, oh, we're going to do a meerkat and an Instagram. No, no, no. Figuring out what it's going to look like. And then actually not necessarily scripting out the story, but figuring it out. So a lot of what I get brought in for is, you know, a perfect example is like, say an NGO is doing a, uh, they're, they're, they're launching a well in, you know, Kenya or something. And I'll go in and I'll bring my camera and I'll capture the moment and I'll tell the story. And it's usually the best thing is the reason why people bring in someone from the outside is, you know, I'm not filled with all the acronyms and all the baggage that comes with working for any brand. They give me those things and then I craft the story and tell it and and usually tell it in my voice, but in a brand friendly voice. Um, Every engagement is different, but I, I love doing it because as a photographer and a writer, I love just figuring out the story and telling it to people. And sometimes that means like a full-blown marketing campaign. Sometimes it just means a blog post or a photo essay. Um, it's, it's sort of like, you know, brand, some people call it branded journalism. There's all these different phrases. I just, I like storyteller cause I think it's more encompassing, even though that word is getting kind of yeah. some baggage attached to it lately, you know, as everybody's it's becoming a buzzword, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's, it's also misunderstood a lot. People yes. think, Oh, so I just, uh, Take what you know. Take this very salesy message that I want to get across, and just tell it in in a, in a, in a very story form kind <laughs> of way. Or they think it's we started in 1955, but my great grandfather. Right. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of misunderstanding, uh, like you said, and it's about you have you have to identify it and uncover it first. And yeah. and you're working with huge. I mean, these are enterprises. I mean, what's it like to you know, because you're a guy who believes in humility, you've even given talks on this, you know, being yourself, laughing at yourself. This isn't very corporate. So what's it like no. to navigate, um, you know, these are really bad words, but the hierarchy and some of the bureaucracy maybe that, that can permeate some of these bigger enterprises that you're dealing with. How, how, does, how does your message usually play out to a room full of executives at, at places like that? Well, it's so... A lot of those big age, big companies you're talking about, you know, they're people I worked with in my agency days on marketing campaigns and other sort of things, which definitely had a storytelling element to it. And a lot of it is there's a lot of blank stares. There's a lot of and, you know, well, why is that the way to do it? But the, where, the way we always got around it and I think is where it gets skipped over sometimes when no matter who we were talking to, we always what we never talked about platforms. We never talked about you know metrics and those stuff at the beginning. It was really about okay, what is it that you're really trying to accomplish? Why do you want to accomplish it? How do you want to get there? Having those sort of conversations sort of gets them off their element because they're you know they're they're looking at spreadsheets and how much this is going to cost us and you know well cost is important. That's where we used to start is well no what's the real goal? Oh we're doing we want to bring in a whole new crowd from the younger demographic. Okay cool how are we going to do that the 
by having those conversations first and and it makes you it makes them realize no matter how big they are it makes them realize oh okay we are on the same page or at least we're we're, we're reaching for the same goals and and then you start getting to the harder harder conversations of the tactics and the money and those sort of things uh, but that's that's how I like to have it and to and to realize that the aid whoever you're going in and talking to even if they've already signed the contract and, and you're that you need to make them feel comfortable. And they are going to be nervous because they're spending money on you and your ideas. And you've got to get them feeling more comfortable. And it's it takes time. They're not going to – one meeting, they're not going to go, hey, here's the here's the keys to the castle. Go forth and have fun. I wish it was that easy. But it's an ongoing uh, trust process. And thankfully now, I mean, it's gets to the point now where I'm really – selective on who I work with because sometimes sometimes you can't sometimes those big big clients while they're fun because they have the budgets some of them you know there's more lawyers and PR people and red tape and hoops you gotta jump through that you never get anything done and that's why I mean I think the modern marketing agency model is is eternally screwed I think it's just it's just I don't know I don't know how to fix it but I know what's wor- what's going on right now ain't working. And it's very metrics driven too. And you just talked about that. And I think you touch on something really important and, and really interesting. And in a previous episode with Seth Godin, he mentioned he's never looked at his Google Analytics. He doesn't worry about SEO. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, Seth Godin doesn't have to worry about that stuff. Well, at one time he did, you know. Um, and I would we- argue he didn't. I, it, I don't either. I, yeah. I couldn't tell you my Google in. I don't. I. And I know, I know if I looked at my Google Analytics and maybe cared more about that stuff, I'd probably be doing better, maybe. But I also know, I just don't, I don't judge my, yes, numbers are important. Metrics are important. Measuring, measuring campaigns is important. I don't want to say that. But for me, I've always created everything I do for myself first. If I write a blog post and it goes, gets really popular, that's awesome. Anybody who tells you it's not is lying. That feels really cool. But I mean, I could write 10 posts right now on content marketing stuff that do really good, but it would suck my soul. I just, I don't measure my success on my numbers. I I mean, granted, if my wallet's empty, that's bad. That's a metric that I care about (laughs) my family being fed. But I, yeah, I don't look at, I I just, I just, I've never, ever, and I, it's funny because people, I say that on stage and people get really angry at me and they do the, well, you're CC Chapman. Like I'm CC Chapman. Give me a break. I'm like, I'm still struggling every day to, you know, to, to find the next gig and those sort of things. I'm working hard every day too. I said, but that's just not how I measure my personal success. It doesn't matter to me. Well, CC Chapman 10, 15 years ago wasn't, it wasn't what these people, you know. Oh, ex- heck no. <laughs> ex- so, so by, you know, for you to have gotten to where you are with that sort of, you know, mentality, obviously there's, there's some merit to that. I think what's happened is because we've all become so enabled by the, the, you know, the plethora of software out there that allows us to measure everything, we've forgotten what it's like to conceptualize anything that's not based on data. True. And uh, I think I think it maybe provides a veil for 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 some marketers to hide behind too, because they know if they if they if they follow the data and develop campaigns around that, it's it's safe. You know? And don't forget, and don't forget numbers. You can I can spit you and oh my god, just wa- I always hated watching like uh, agencies and, and even the agencies I was working with. Sometimes you know, part of you know, you can spin numbers any way you want to. Numbers are very creative. You know, you can do lots of creative stuff on them, make them sound better or worse. That's why I always love when you see people sharing like like visits to their website. The you know, one person will say daily, one will say monthly, and uniques versus it's just data is important. I love data. I just don't get 
I love it, but I don't get turned on by it. That sounds like a fun way to put it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Top ahead. I can hear Tom Webster right now. If he listened to this, like punching me, going, CC data's more important, damn it. You oh. can spin it any way you want and make yeah. it work. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very flexible in that way. Um, I, I alluded to earlier about your, your creative mornings talk in Boston, yeah. uh, which didn't happen uh, very, very recent. And you told the audience, don't strive for perfection. It doesn't exist. Uh. So as somebody such as yourself who publishes a ton of content in a ton of different mediums, you work with a lot of different companies internationally, how do you navigate your own relationship with perfection? I hate perfection. I hate it. I, I just I, I see too many of my friends and colleagues be crippled by this isn't good enough. It's not perfect. And then they never actually, as Seth Godin says, they never ship. They never they just they constantly spin their cycles. Um it's also true because like I publish a blog post and I can think of two friends uh, who will almost immediately check it for grammar and send me all the mistakes I made <laughs> after it's live. Like, dude, you missed this. I'm like, I just don't care. Yes. I edit my posts. Yes. I check them. Um, photography. Sometimes, uh, when I'm taking a snapshot, if it's just a quick shot, yeah, I pay attention to it. I look at it and is it always the perfect shot? No, it's not. Um, I just, I've, I've learned to accept that, Perfection is something that you can't achieve. You should always try to be better. You should always try to push out the best that you can, whatever it is, you know, whether it's a plate of food or a scarf you needed for somebody or a photograph or a blog post. You should always make it as good as possible. But as humans, we are our own biggest critics. I yell and scream at myself all the time in my head and out loud, but I realize that it's never going to be perfect enough for me. And it's always funny because some of the most throwaway content, like a snapshot or a blog post, I just kind of brained up and hit publish. Those are the ones that end up every so often. One of those will go not, you know, gets really popular as opposed to one that I spent lots of time crafting and da da da, And then that gets no attention. So I just, and everybody's had that moment. So I just, I, I want it to be as good as possible. And I and I always strive for that, but I realize there's no there's no perfect. Someone's always going to do it better than I am. Um, I just I, I I try to put it out the best thing I can. And there's no predicting what what oh is on. Yeah, it's almost like as soon as you hit publish, it's not yours anymore, and it's not yours to decide if it's perfect, if it's great. It's up to everyone else. And and I don't think there's any greater feeling than when they do decide that this is great. Uh, we we relate, we empathize, and that, that I don't think there's any greater feeling when you know you've you've oh, hit yeah. something that that really works. And a guy like you, I'm sure, has done that a number of times. I'm sure you have you have a lot of experience in 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 that way. Um, but Another thing I found really fascinating about you is your is your your consultancy Never Enough Days. So first, I want to talk about the moment you had in your career that sort of changed you. Yeah. Uh, you decided, you know, I have all these marketing skills and I have this influence, and uh, you know, I, but I don't want to use it anymore unless <laughs> it's for these great things and you know, for NGOs, for nonprofits. Can you talk about that moment yeah, specifically sure. and and how it changed you? Uh, April 2012. Uh, I am in Accra, Ghana on the African continent, and I am in a hospital that specializes in uh, malnutrition. And I have this little girl who's the same age as my son. She's 13 years old. She looks to be about eight years old because she is so malnutritioned, holding my fingers, and she won't let go. That was the moment. Her name was Mercy. Sadly, she passed away shortly after I left, uh, after a couple months. Uh, that was the moment. That 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 specific moment in time was when everything changed because uh, I was I was there with the one campaign and the Gavi Alliance 
there to just document, just to share what I saw. Uh, and I saw a country where I saw poverty, I saw sickness, I saw uh, things I never imagined I would see. And instantly it made me take it made me go, wow, CC, you've got things really good at home uh, compared to everything I was seeing. And then I met students from there too, who were university students and they, they, they had no desire to leave Ghana. They wanted to do amazing things there. And I met all these, all these great people and I came home and I went, okay, I've always been a bit big, big about volunteering. I've always been big about giving back. I think that the best thing and the best feeling in the world is when you volunteer and help somebody. And I said, you know what? I need to find a way to use my skills for good. I want to, yes, I could go market the latest soda or the latest gadget and that stuff is fun, but I want to give back in some way with everything I do. So uh, it was a, it was a little while before I formed never enough days, but my concept was, listen, I want to, whether it's helping a nonprofit do their marketing or whether it's helping an NGO or if it's helping a big brand uh, develop, there's this whole thing, corporate social responsibilities, CSR, where, you know, companies, the biggest company in the world can give back in the, in some way they can, you know, encourage their employees to volunteer Tom shoes or Ben and Jerry's or B corps where they, they donate part of their profits and they're not driven just by profit and never enough days was, I founded it because the concept is I knew in life, there's never enough days to do everything I want. And I know everybody has that, you know, and I got a lot of flack about it being a negative name. I'm like, no, you're missing the point. And I think that's, that's my litmus test. If someone, if someone hears it as negative, I'm like, yeah, you're you're someone I don't need to work with right now. Um, but yeah, my focus right now is helping companies, you know, figure out ways to get back, give back in some way, whether it's, you know, people, planet or profit, the triple bottom line. I'm, I believe I live a purposeful life. I'm a social entrepreneur. Um, and it just, that, I mean, that's that. That's and I'm still figuring it out because the market isn't ready for this yet. A lot of people are talking about it. A lot of people are not ready to spend money on it. So it's been a really uh, tough struggle since changing my focus in this direction. But it is so while, while it may not be great on the wallet, it is so good on my heart and my soul. And every day I wake up just ready for the next challenge, and I love it. Yeah, and you mentioned Tom Shoes too. They, um, the founder Blake McCoskey wrote a great book, "Start Something yes, That did. Matters." And uh, for all the listeners, definitely check that out. "Start Something That Matters" definitely rings true of everything that CC's saying, and 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 very applicable, and and basically the same sort of mindset. So about the name of the consult, you you named it "Never Enough Days." Can you talk about that? Like, what is, what yeah. is that? What does that mean? It means, I mean, plain and simple, it means, uh, it, was, it was funny because I had the name for a while. I had this idea that I was going to uh, create a magazine, like a quarterly publication called Never Enough Days. And it was going to focus, or it was either going to be that or a travel blog. Because I thought it was really interesting because of the concept of bucket lists and, you know, and lifeless. The fact that there would never be enough days that to do everything I wanted. I think that's true for everybody. There's never enough days to make the world a better place. There's never enough days to hug your wife or your husband. And I just it kept coming back to me and I went, you know what? That's the consultancy name. That's that's like my motto. That's what I do. And it just, it, you know, the, there's never enough days to write everything I want. There's never enough days to create everything I want to do. And it just, that that's where it came from. It's very, very simple. And it just, it was one of those ideas where um, I think anybody, anybody out there has this problem. It's, you know, I couldn't shake it. It kept popping up in my head. I'd be like, oh. Oh, I walk away from it for I go do something else. I come back and it's like, Cece, you need to do this. And after a few weeks of it gnawing at my brain nonstop, I'm like, all right, let's do this. And that's where we're where we're at. 
It's and it's a brilliant it's a brilliant organization. I remember when um you know you really talked about it heavily a couple of years ago when it first when it first launched. And I and I hope and I know it's from a fulfillment standpoint, it'll probably always be the most successful thing that you you know you may, you feel you've ever done. But I hope it far and away financially for everything personally ends up being the most successful thing you you ever do because it's it's so important and, and such a great cause. So that's it's it's great. Well, thank you. Do you. Well, uh, thank you. And so from a more personal standpoint, you know, as far as your process processes and stuff go this this part's always a lot of fun okay. for me um where do you you know when you're sitting down the right and you're sitting down to you know conceptualize a campaign for for a client like where do you extract inspiration from books whatever it is movies music where do you extract inspiration from when you create all of it i mean it, like i'm sitting at my desk right now in my office i've got a pretty cool office i'm blessed that i, I have like a man town crossed with an office and looking around i see bookshelves i see you know the latest magazines. I, I still buy magazines. I love magazines. Oh, me too. Uh, I, I and not digital. They're just not the same. I want paper well, or books too. I, I have yeah. to have the physical book. Yeah. Ah, uh, see, I can I can read on the Kindle too. My bedside. The rule though is when I go to bed at night and I read. Um, there, there's there's it's always almost always paper. But I and I try to mix it up too. So like my rule with reading is I read a nonfiction book then a fiction a nonfiction. I because I want to mix it up because I found I was just reading. Um, business books and that's boring i also love gadgets i mean i've got every sort of gadget laying around here i've got video i've got an xbox here on the television i i pull it from everywhere i I love movies i am a music lover i can't not work without music um so that there's always music playing in my office what Uh, are you what are you really into right now like what do i have to check out on spotify right when we leave here I don't stream music. Uh, I don't. <laughs> iTunes, no. wherever. I buy it. I sorry. Back to the music rights thing from before. Yeah. I think streaming music is such a big middle finger to artists, and it it's pisses. Not, yeah, it's not. But I get it. Money, I get yeah. it, it. But it's a balancing act, right? I get it. But sorry, you hit it. You, you touched the third rail there. No, <laughs> I, I mean, I. But I have. I'm, I do. I'm checking out uh, iTunes or Apple Music, whatever it is right now. I mean, I listen. I, it's fun. I have two teenage kids, so they, they, you know, they expose me to all new. I'm trying to think now. Twenty one poets or twenty one something or like uh, somebody the other day. Twenty one like, pilots. Twenty one. That's pilots, it. I think, yeah, that's yeah. something like that. Like yeah. my daughter was like, "Check them out, Dad." And they're they're pretty cool. I'm digging them. I mean, I'm a big grunge guy. I grew up, you know, so I still crank Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam all the time. I still crank a lot of independent music, like the podcast stuff I used to play on my podcast. Um, when I really my process, you want to talk about my process? When I yesterday I had I was on deadline to write something whenever i really have to focus and get jamming i crank the crystal method as loud as i can <laughs> on headphones because it i mean i have i have a bose surround sound speaker system but no when i need to focus i put on the headphones i shut my office door and i just blare and i, I go through you just mentioned pearl jam that's my all-time favorite band nice. right there. i've actually seen them uh 15 times <laughs> so i have never i have a bit seen, of a problem <laughs> i have never seen them and i don't know how i mean i i grew up doing college radio play you know at the height of grunge, I mean, you know, never mind. I wore out copies on CD from Nirvana. I mean, but I have yet to see Pearl Jam. Somehow, I mean, I listen to their bootlegs all the time. I don't know how I have not seen them in concert. And they love Boston. They love I know Boston. they do. <laughs> They're always – it kills me. It's uh, almost like you have kids then you don't get to go to concerts as much anymore. Lucky they're still around. And Eddie Vedder I still think has one of the best voices. But uh, we, we could probably do a whole podcast yes. about grunge. But, uh, <laughs> but what, what about books? Like what do you – what's the last thing you read that you like people need to read this? Uh, the Blackbird series from Chuck Windig. So creative. Uh, this uh, Basically, the, this woman, if she touches you, she sees how you die. And it just was – the writing. This guy can 
flipping right. Not my typical thing, but I saw him on Twitter and he talks, he writes, his blog, his blog posts are about a lot more things than just writing. And I read the books and I was blown away at how, how good it was. And I also, on the flip side, uh, there's this book called Killing Lions by, I'm going to mess up his name, but Killing Lions, amazing book that I suggest any, 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 any man has to read because it's all about the father-son relationship um, specifically. And it's just, yeah, Killing Lions was, it's the last book that really left me thinking like, oh my God, this is so good. Well, I just added both of those to my Amazon wish list. Awesome. So yeah, definitely check those out. Uh, what about like, what about like, uh, everybody talks about hacks. And I almost hate that word because it's almost another <laughs> one of those words like you were saying, like storytelling and things like yeah. that. Like productivity hacks. Like what is the, it could be something pen and paper. Like what do you do like that maybe is just like this works for me really well that you could share with other people? I mean, I write everything down. I have a notebook with me at all times. I mean, anybody who read Amazing Things Will Happen knows I dedicated a whole chapter to notebooks because I have, I have a little bit of a fetish. Uh, I love notebooks. I, have, I mean, I've got field notes always with me, and I, and I write things down all the time. I make lots of lists. I have a physical um, – like right now I'm looking at – so one of the things I do, I travel a lot. And my personal travel souvenir is I take the notebooks from the hotels I stay at always, those little notepads. Mm-hmm. And because they're throwaways, but I always use, and I literally, I, I have lists. Like in the morning, I'll sit down and I'll make a list of the things I have to do because I forget things all the time, especially this summer when my wife would be like, hey, can you start wash today? Or that's on my list for today, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, the only thing left on my, my list today is Dylan Bank. I have to take my son to the bank so he can deposit money for the first time in his savings account. But I, I literally, I write down lists because writing it, and I've tried every app imaginable, and none of them click for me. But writing it down and physically crossing it out saying I'm done is it's not a hack, but it's what works for me. Pen and paper still as much as I love digital and as much as I love technology, I, something about pen and paper is what keeps me. It's where I drop down my ideas. It's where I do my best brainstorming. I lay out every speech I ever have given any book, pretty much any content that needs that sort of outlining. It's always on paper first, always. I'm the same way. Moleskin notebooks, there's nothing yeah. digital that can that can compare to that for me. Having a good pen. And I say that because like when we were all kids, we all used to look forward to the first day of school and going shopping and getting all the, oh, yeah. the goodies. And inside of all of us, we still have that. So I would tell all the listeners, like, get a really good pen and notebook and you will embrace it again. It's just it, there is something, like you said, there's something that you just you can't get from the laptop or the phone that you get from 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 pen and paper that that's just brilliant. And now are and, you a pen are you a pen person or a pencil person? I'm a pen guy. I actually have <laughs> uh, I actually have it actually right here. It's a uh, it's Sharpie makes pens, and yep. they're they're very they're very thin. And uh, I don't know, I just really like them. And and uh, I don't know uh, the, the pen and the and the moleskin. And what I do is I actually take the pens from the hotels. So together, oh, you and I might have go. something here. There you go. You know? So um, and are you are you a iPhone guy, Android? What, what do you have? Android at the moment. So I think there's a lot that could be said about somebody based on what they have like on their home screen there. Like what app, what apps do you have on your home screen that you can't like that you just use all the time. You can't live without. Let me open it up. So I have, I have uh, five apps on my homepage. I have Instagram, Twitter, Chrome, Evernote. And then I have my home, my what's called my home folder, which has Sonos and my solar city in it. <laughs> Because that's, I have to have those. What's things. my Solar City? I've never heard of that one. Oh, I have solar panels. Solar City. Oh, it's, okay. Uh, same right. guy, Elon Musk, who owns Tesla on uh, SpaceX, owns my own Solar City. And this, it's just an app. So literally, I can open up at any point in the world and see how l- real time how much energy my solar panels are generating. Wow, and that's, 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 that's while I don't like data, that geeks me out. 
<laughs> I love looking at that. And Sonos is great. I love Oh, my that. God. I love but Sonos. The easiest. It's so funny because I always tell people, I'm like, you don't understand. Sonos sets up the way every technology device should. Push a button. Oh, boom. I'm connected. Love. I don't know how I lived without Sonos. Not a paid endorsement. My God, I keep buying those damn things because they're so awesome. Yeah, and they have so many different kinds. And yeah. You know, you put them in every single room, and uh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, love them. So we mentioned this before. You have a ton of places where people could check you out. You, you know, your photography, your Instagram, your blog. Where, where do you want to send people from this podcast so they can learn more about CC and the stuff that you do? The best place to find me is cc-chapman.com. Uh, it's my website. It's got links to – in the upper right-hand corner, it's got links to every social network I'm on. Um, pretty much every social network, I'm cc underscore Chapman. But yeah, cc-chapman.com is the easiest place to find me. CC, this was awesome, man. Thanks so much Thanks, for coming dude. on and, and hanging out. You're tons of fun. Uh, you're doing so many great things, and I, I loved having you on here today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I was glad we got to have this cool conversation. And now we just got we got to get together face to face sometime. Absolutely. I'm going to be in Boston a lot more. So we'll definitely have to get together and have some coffee Sounds and, good. and talk about uh, everything. And Pearl uh, Jam, right? Abs- absolutely. <laughs> yeah, man. When, next time they're, I can't believe you've never seen they, I they don't know love how. love Boston. My brother and I actually go up to every time Pearl Jam plays in Northeast, the place we go see him. It's not Madison Square Garden. It's not Connecticut where we're from. We always go to Boston because for some reason they yeah. love Boston and they play the best shows. I think I the, their longest recorded show ever uh, was in Mansfield. But they love Boston. They love Massachusetts. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, but <laughs> one of these days I need to make it happen. It'll happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks again, CC. Um, thanks again for everyone coming out to listen and be sure to check in again soon because just like CC, we're going to have more guests just like that. Thanks again for joining Louder Than Words. Like, subscribe, share with your friends, do all those great things, and we will see you soon. In the meantime, start making stuff. So long, everybody. Mm-hmm.